Welcome to the April 28th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is 1 Kings 3 through 5 and Luke 20. Hopefully, you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. First Kings 3. As this chapter begins, uh, we observe something that makes sense on the governmental level, but it's a spiritual sin. Uh, Listen to verse 1. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. That's part of verse 1. Listen to this. On a governmental sin, that made sense by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh, king of a neighboring country, and this made sense because Pharaoh would be less likely to attack a country if doing so would risk the life of his daughter. We understand that, don't we? Yet spiritually, this was a sin. Pharaoh's daughter almost certainly would not have embraced the God of heaven. She would have continued to worship her own Egyptian pagan gods, Something demonstrated in Israel's history is that when they were given the opportunity to worship another god, they would take it. So Solomon was inviting paganism not merely into Israel, but into the very palace. This will not end well. In fact, verse 3 tells us why Solomon was so willing to marry pagan women. Listen to verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord by walking in the statutes of his father David. Well, that's good so far. But listen to the rest of the verse. But he also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Okay, that's problematic. The Canaanites who lived in the land before the Israelites conquered it worshipped their pagan deities by sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. So Solomon is mixing worship of the true God with worship of pagan gods. And he's even marrying women who were bringing in their paganism. Well, the Lord in his grace spoke to Solomon even as he was offering sacrifices to pagan deities. Listen to verses 4 and 5. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because it was the most famous high place. He offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night and God said, Ask, what should I give you? Um, Solomon replied that God had been so good to his father, King David. Yet now that Solomon was on the throne, he needed wisdom. He was young and didn't have experience and needed the Lord to provide him with the insight to lead Israel well. Since Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom and not selfishly for a long time, a long life or riches or the death of his enemies, the Lord granted his request and so much more. Listen to verse 15. Then Solomon woke up and realized it had been a dream. He went to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he held a feast for all his servants. Well, in verses 16 through 28, we have an instance in which Solomon's wisdom was tested. Let me read verses 16 through 22 to you. It says, Then two women who were prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. 
One woman said, Please, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was in the house. On the third day after I gave birth, she also had a baby, and we were alone. No one else was with us in the house. Just the two of us were there. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. She got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your servant was asleep. She laid him in her arms, and she put her dead son in my arms. When I got up in the morning to nurse my son, I discovered he was dead. That morning, when I looked closely at him, I realized that he was not my son I gave birth to. No, the other woman said, my son is the living one, your son is the dead one. Well, we've heard this story before and know what happens next. But if you were in the moment, we would have thrown up our hands in despair. If we were Solomon, there would have been no witnesses, no cameras, no DNA evidence, just one lady's word against another. How in the world are we going to figure out who the mom of the living baby is? Well, Solomon's wisdom was demonstrated in calling their bluff. He acted like he cared nothing for the baby, and he was going to cut it in half and split it between the two of them. And he knew that the real mom's heart would rise to the top for all to see. And in verse 28, all Israel heard about the judgments of the king, uh, the judgment that the king had given, and they stood in awe of the king because they saw that God's wisdom was in him to carry out justice. And so we have Solomon asking for wisdom, God giving it to him. Okay, so 1 Kings 4. In verses 1 through 19, we read the names of key players in the story of Solomon. These were the leaders who oversaw various aspects of Solomon's kingdom, and periodically uh, get, they got to be a part of the biblical story. In verses 20 and 21, we read some verses that paint a picture of a nation enjoying a time of peace. David's reign was a time of war, but Solomon was able to benefit from his father's victories, and now his people are able to enjoy a peaceful life. Listen to verses 20 and 21. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. They were eating, drinking, and rejoicing. Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines and as far as the border of Egypt. They offered tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Well, in verses 22 through 28, we read of the massive amount of provisions that were necessary to keep the machine that was Saul's government running. But it was not simply Solomon's massive government that was impressive. He himself was incredibly impressive. The Israelite people would have enjoyed claiming him as their leader. Listen to verses 29 through 34. God gave Solomon wisdom, very great insight, and understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Haman and Calcol and Darda, sons of Mahal. His reputation extended to all the surrounding nations. Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about the trees, from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He also spoke about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. Emissaries of all peoples sent by every king on earth who had heard of his wisdom came to listen to Saul's wisdom. 
Yep, he was definitely on top of the food chain. First Kings chapter 5. Um, listen to verse 1. King Hiram of Tyre sent his emissaries to Solomon when he heard that he had been anointed king in his father's place, for Hiram had always been friends with David. So Solomon expressed his intentions to build a temple to the Lord. His dad was unable to do it because of the warfare all around him, but Solomon was experiencing a time of peace, so the temple was going to be built. And in order to build it, he would need material, and that's where Hiram came in. Listen to verse 6. Therefore, command that cedars from Lebanon be cut down for me. My servants will be with your servants, and I will pay your servants wages according to whatever you say, for you know that not a man among us knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Well, a deal was worked out, which was essentially a barter where goods were exchanged, not money. Listen to verses 10 and 11. So Hiram provided Solomon with all the cedar and cypress timber he wanted. And Solomon provided Hiram with 120,000 bushels of wheat as food for his household and 120,000 gallons of oil from crushed olives. Solomon did this for Hiram year after year. Well, this chapter comes to an end with a listing of the thousands of, and thousands of people who were conscripted to serve in Solomon's labor force. Our minds can't help but go back many years to where the people of Israel were demanding a king. Samuel warned them of what it would cost them, but they didn't care. They wanted a king. Listen to that incident in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 22. Samuel told all the Lord's words, and remember, we're going way back uh, to before King Saul was anointed. Samuel was warning them of, you know, the cost of having a king. Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots, on his horse, or on his horses or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to your, his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle, and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourself, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. Well, after Solomon said that, you'd think that the people of Israel would say, wait a second, I don't know if we want a king. But verse 19 and 20 says this, The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord said, told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. So, back to our text. The Lord has honored their request for a king. They have had King Saul... They have had King David. Now they have King Solomon. And as we read the end of 1 Kings 5 and all that he had and all of the people that were serving him, we realize that Samuel's prophecy is coming true. They are paying a high price. But 
The Lord is continuing to be gracious to them and to bless them, even though they rejected him as their heavenly king and wanted a man to rule over them as their king. Luke chapter 20. Um, In verses 1 through 8, we see the authority of Jesus challenged. If we look at the various events that uh, that took place uh, on the week that ended in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, then the events of Luke 20 probably happened on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Listen to verses 1 through 2. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? Jesus had been teaching from the scriptures, but aiming at the heart more than mere external behaviors. Jesus had also forcefully and passionately cleared out the temple a couple of days earlier, so the religious folks wanted to know who died and made you boss. Or, in their exact words, tell us by what authority you were doing these things. Who is it who gave you this authority? Jesus could have said, um, you know, guys, I'm God the Son, so while you get your authority from your superiors who bestow that authority upon you, I'm God, so my authority is intrinsic. I get it from nobody. I have all authority simply because I'm the sovereign ruler over the universe. But he didn't say that. He played a little game with them. They were trying to put pressure on him in front of a lot of people, so he desired to publicly pressure them too. In verses 3 and 4, it says, He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? So they asked him by what authority he was doing this. He said, okay, you know what? I'm going to ask you a question. Essentially, if you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. They may have initially thought when he said, "Who's uh, you know, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin, they may have initially thought, well, that's an easy one. You don't have anything better than that, Jesus. And then it hit them. Wait a minute. We can't publicly answer that question. Why? Because if they said that John's authority came from heaven, Jesus would look at them with intensity in his eyes and say, then if you thought John's authority came from heaven, why did you give him such a hard time? Why didn't you believe him? But if they said that John's authority came from human origin, it would infuriate the crowd who may even stone them. Why? Because they thought John the Baptist was a rock star. They believed that he was a prophet of the Lord and they admired him for his message, his courage, his passion, his integrity, and so much more. So whichever way the hypocritical religious leaders answered, they were going to get blasted after it. And so then we read in verses 7 and 8, So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Mic drop. Verses 9 through 19, we have the parable of the vineyard owner. Uh, Jesus told the parable of a man who planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. So in this parable, the man who planted the vineyard was God, the vineyard was the people of Israel, and the tenant farmers were the religious leaders. This parable incriminates the religious folks who harmed the the people uh, that the vineyard owner sent to check out the harvest. Those folks were the prophets that God sent to his people who were abused and even killed. And then the vineyard owner sent his son, who they also killed. 
This is obviously talking about what was going to happen to Jesus in just a few days on the cross. Well, in verses 15 and 16, we hear Jesus say that Israel would be judged and temporarily rejected and the Gentiles would be welcomed into the fold. Listen when he says in verses 15 and 16, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. That's talking about how the gospel would go to the Gentiles. But what are we to make of the talk regarding the cornerstone? Let me read that to you. What's Jesus saying there? Listen to verses 17 and 18. But he looked at them and said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. What's that talking about? Well, Jesus was specifically quoting Psalm 118, verse 22, and he said that the builders, the the stone that the builders thought was of no use, and so they tossed it aside, actually ended up being the most important stone, the cornerstone upon which all the other stones rested. Jesus was the stone that the Jews were going to toss aside because they didn't think that he was worth much, but God was going to vindicate Jesus and build a church, build a kingdom upon him and upon his work. And then when it said that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Well, this is talking about Jesus one day being a judge. He was tossed aside, but he's going to judge the world one day. And so we had better be on his side. In verses 20 through 26, we have the the whole thing of God and Caesar. And once again, some folks watched Jesus closely to publicly discredit him. And they asked him in a public setting, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, that question seems harmless, but that's because we aren't Jews in first century Jerusalem. If Jesus had said it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, it would have infuriated the Jews. They despised the Roman occupiers. Yet if Jesus said it was not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, those folks would have run off to tell the Roman leaders in Jerusalem that Jesus was encouraging treason among the Jews. So it seems as if Jesus could answer, no way. Remember, Jesus put the religious leaders in this situation regarding the authority of John the Baptist, and they said, uh, we can't answer. So is Jesus going to say, uh, I can't answer? Nope. Listen to verses 23 through 25. But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius, whose image and description and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well, they don't know where he's going with this, so they just answer Caesar's. And then he says in verse 25, Well then, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Once again, if he had a microphone uh, in his hand, this would be the moment where he held it out and dropped it. (laughs) Verse 26, they were not able to catch him and what he said in public and being amazed at his answers, they became silent. Well, then let's get to verses 27 through 40 and uh, the Sadducees, a a religious sect, um, came to Jesus and tried to trick him. 
They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they referred to the Old Testament Leveret Law and essentially said this. They said, um, Jesus, there, there was a man who had a wife, but he died with no kids. And so his brother married his wife to raise up kids for his brother, but he died before they had kids. And this cycle continued until the seventh and final brother died, and then the wife died. The Sadducees were probably rolling their eyes and chuckling under their breath. They created what they believed to be a ridiculous scenario and would enjoy hearing Jesus bumble all over himself trying to answer it. And then they gave the punchline. In the resurrection, therefore... You know, after uh, people die and supposedly a resurrection after that, in the resurrection, whose, li whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Well, the Sadducees were probably doing all they could to keep from laughing. This was so hilarious to them. But Jesus would soon silence them. Another gospel writer recorded Jesus' first words to these Sadducees, and Matthew chapter 22, verse 29 says, Jesus answered them, You are mistaken because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. In other words, you are messed up in your thinking because you don't know your Bibles, and you don't know that God is powerful enough to raise the dead. So he blasted them. Well, when Jesus told them that marriage is for the purpose of procreation in this life. But in the life to come, there is no procreation. So there's no need for marriages. Yet that doesn't mean we won't know who our spouse was. In fact, I believe our love for our spouses will grow exponentially, but in some way that we cannot presently understand, we will enjoy that relationship and so many more without marriage. Well, then Jesus went for the jugular. He addressed their problem with the resurrection. He pointed out that uh, when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now uh, they're gone uh, forever. No, instead, God makes it clear that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, but are clearly alive because he said he is, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just listen to Matthew's account, Matthew 22, 31 and 32. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? Haven't you read your Bibles? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, present tense. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am. That means they're alive. Well, that shut them up. According to Luke's account in verse 40, and they no longer dared to ask him anything. Um, well, Jesus was apparently having fun. Uh, he loved and understood the Bible, but the folks around him either didn't know their Bibles or they had grown bored and lazy with it. So he asked another intriguing question. Jesus essentially asks, How is it that the Messiah is a descendant of David, and yet David called him his Lord, present tense? In other words, how can David refer to someone who is yet to be born as someone who is already in existence as his Lord? Listen to how Jesus put it in verses 41 through 44. Then he said to them, How can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and that's chapter 110, verse 1, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
David calls him Lord. How then can the Messiah be his son? These guys were stumped. They couldn't answer the question. But for Christians, the answer is easy. Since Jesus has always existed as God, he was certainly existing as David's Lord during David's lifetime. Yet, because God would take on flesh and also become a man, this is how David's Lord was yet to be born and in a place called Bethlehem. Well, let's finish up this chapter by looking at verses 45 through 47 and uh, read some warnings against the scribes. Uh, We're going to end our time in Scripture uh, today by listening to what Jesus said in verses 45 through 47, and I'll give you a brief comment afterward. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 45 through 47. While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, um, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour women's uh, widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Well, that makes sense to us, except maybe the last part where it talks about harsher judgment. I believe that harsher judgment speaks of the day of judgment when people will stand before Jesus. The Bible does not teach that all who go to hell will suffer the same. Instead, it speaks of how some will receive a harsher judgment because of the seriousness of their sin. It seems that the harsher judgments are always designated for those people or leaders who knew the truth and yet rejected it. it they may also have led other people to reject the truth. And this is consistent with the Apostle Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you uh, for this time that we've been able to spend in your word. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be gospel-centered, to be Christ-centered, to not be like the Pharisees, not be like the Sadducees who pretended to know your word and yet when confronted with Jesus, it became so clear they they may have thought they knew your word, but they did not understand it. They did not understand it, and they certainly didn't have hearts that aligned with what they claimed to believe. Lord, help us, even in our struggles with sin, to love you and to grow in that love for you, to enjoy you and grow in that enjoyment of you, to know your word, to study your word, and to grow in our understanding and enjoyment and application of your word. Uh, Lord, we're not perfect. We're not going to be close to that until you perfect us when we step through death's door. But Lord, I pray that we would not use that as an excuse for not growing in holiness and not growing in our love for and knowledge of your word. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.